Oh Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may have heard the name Michael Burry. He's a medical doctor and also an investment manager. And um, he saw something that not many people wanted to let themselves see. Thinking back to 2003, 2004, he was doing research on the real estate market. And he was reaching some unpopular conclusions that the prevalence of subprime mortgages had created a real estate bubble that was soon going to burst. You know, nobody wanted to listen to him. What he was saying defied conventional wisdom. Um, If you were just a casual reader of the Wall Street Journal at that time, or you watched financial shows on TV, you would have concluded that the real estate market is booming and should continue to do so. But Michael Burry persisted in his conviction that demise was coming for the banking industry as a result of this subprime crisis. So almost all the investors who had put in their money with him withdrew their money. Um, But of course, Michael Burry was right. And if you've seen the movie The Big Short, you know his story and that the small group that kept their investments with him made $700 million while most of the rest of the uh, financial world was in chaos and ruins. Today, we're in week five of our six-week Amos series. And what we've seen so far in the first four weeks is that Amos has been a Michael Burry-type preacher to the people of Israel to whom he was speaking He's saying things like this, bad things are coming, you've been doing this wrong, judgment is on its way, and the people were responding sort of in line with this, what do you mean? I'm in my vacation home right now, lying on a bed of ivory, sipping wine straight from the bottle, and all my friends that I know are doing the same. If God was so displeased with how we were living, why would he let us live in such luxury? Why would he bless us so much? But Amos as we've seen over the past four weeks, persists in his message. He says, no, 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 you don't get it. Judgment is coming, and you, Israel, are going to be the recipients of that judgment, worst of all. Um, God isn't pleased with your self-indulgence while the needs of the marginalized are neglected. And God sent me from Judah up to Israel to tell you that wealth is not an indicator of God's blessing. And so today we're in Amos chapter 8. Would you turn there with me? We've reached chapter 8 of Amos's message. And if you're trying to remember how, where are we at in this book, these last three chapters, 7, 8, and 9, contain five visions that Amos gives right at the end of his message as maybe like it seems like a last-ditch effort to try to get some of the people, at least in Israel, to turn from their wicked ways and return to God. Last week in chapter 7, we saw the first three of the five visions. Today in chapter 8, we're going to see the fourth of the five visions. Um, And today, the prophecy of destruction is going to be expanded beyond the sanctuaries and the palaces that the destruction was prophesied to last week. It's going to be expanded to all of Israel this week. So here's how Amos chapter 8 works. He gives a vision, and then he talks about two types of judgment. He gives a vision first and expands on that with two types of judgment that are coming. So we'll just walk through that as it goes in chapter 8. The vision's in the first three verses of chapter 8. And so we'll start there. In verses 1 through 3 of Amos 8, we see this principle. That sometimes all seems well before God executes his judgment. 
Sometimes all seems well before God executes his judgment. Take a look at verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, summer fruit, you might be thinking, that's a pleasant vision. Thank you, Amos, for lightening things up a little bit. Last week, the visions were about locusts devouring everything and fire consuming everything. I like a basket of summer fruit a lot better. And maybe some of Amos' hearers were thinking the same thing in Israel. This vision, the one of summer fruit, matched their experience more, actually. Their lives were kind of like a basket of summer fruit at the time, very pleasant. But the thing about summer fruit is that it's your last hope. Um, Once you've eaten the summer fruit, that's it for the year, right? And that's exactly why God showed them summer fruit as this vision in verse 1 of chapter 8. Take a look at how he explains it in verse 2. He said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. So God takes the vision of summer fruit that, and its apparent pleasantness and turns it over on its head. And he says, hey, just as summer fruit is the last bit of pleasantness before it's all done, so I am about to bring an end to you, O Israel. And in verse 3, we see that whatever Amos sees in the rest of this vision is so unthinkably gruesome that Amos has difficulty even speaking it in complete sentences. Did you notice that in Amos chapter 8 as you were taking a look at it this week? He says, The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. Why? All Amos can say is this, So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. We don't know exactly what Amos was seeing as he made those exclamations. We know it's prophesying a future Assyrian invasion. And uh, we know that he's seeing the place that was once filled with worship songs be filled with crying. And it's not just any kind of crying. It's the wailings of utter tragedy. It's terrorized screams. It's the sort of screams that make your body violently shake and your vision go in and out. But why are the people wailing? What have they just experienced? And that's what Amos doesn't tell us in full. It's like he can't tell us in full. He can't get it out. All he can give us is these short exclamatory bursts. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. We know from extra biblical sources that the common practice of the Assyrian armies was that they'd pick a prominent place in town and they would make a pile of just hands or just heads as a reminder to everyone in town who would maybe think about rebellion that this was not a good idea. We don't know for sure if they did that when they invaded Israel 40 years after this was written. But if we imagine a pile of hands and heads, that could produce in us, if we saw a vision like that, the sort of exclamations that Amos gives us in verse 3 of chapter 8 that make us stumble for words. And even though it's going to be Assyria that does this to Israel, Amos wants Israel to remember this is ultimately going to be God's wrath. He wants them to remember that when God's wrath comes, there's going to be carnage that's too horrific for words. Now, somebody here this morning is thinking, this is the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament God of wrath. I prefer worshiping and thinking about Jesus. And I'm so glad we live in this New Testament where it's an era of grace 
And when I'm worshiping, I connect with the idea of worshiping Jesus more than connecting with the idea of worshiping the wrathful Old Testament God. Jesus is nice. Here's the problem with that kind of way of thinking and approaching Amos. To be blunt, the problem is that we haven't read our Bibles enough if we're thinking that way. For one thing, the Bible teaches a God who never changes. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. The Jesus that we're so fond of is called the exact representation of his being. But secondly, we need to rightly understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, you will see many examples of wrath, God's righteous anger being poured out, right? But you will also see many, many examples of God's grace, won't you? Think about from the beginning. He made it possible for Adam and Eve to continue to live and even flourish in the years after their all-out rebellion against him in Genesis 3. Think about the first murderer, Cain, who was protected by God so that he wouldn't be killed for his sin. Think about how he took his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt, even though they had done nothing to deserve such treatment. Think about how they rebelled against him in a thousand different ways from Egypt to the promised land, and yet he still brought them graciously into the promised land anyway. If we're reading the Old Testament and all we're seeing is a wrathful God, we're not reading very carefully. There's so much grace there. And so that's why, um, well, let's talk about the New Testament now. The New Testament isn't just a story of God's grace taking the place of God's former wrath. It's something different than that when you read it through. You see both grace and wrath in the Old Testament. You see both grace and wrath in the New Testament. And that's why Dr. Carson over at Trinity Trinity helpfully explains it, I think, like this. He says the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is one of everything getting ratcheted up a notch, so to speak. Everything gets ratcheted up a notch. So the grace that was seen as a shadow in the Old Testament is now seen in its substance in the New Testament. But also the wrath that we see in the Old Testament actually pales in comparison to the wrath that we see portrayed in the New Testament. Did you realize that? I mean, think about it. In an Amos here, we're spared the fullness of whatever Amos was seeing in chapter 8, the gruesome details of the carnage, right? But in the New Testament, the Apostle John has no such issue explaining to us in detail what judgment is going to come for the enemies of God. Take a look at just a brief excerpt in Revelation chapter 19. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If we had time, I'd continue on and you'd hear about all of God's enemies being slain by the sword that proceeds from the mouth of this one warrior. You would hear about the birds being gorged on the flesh of the fallen. There's great detail in the New Testament depiction of the wrath that's coming for God's enemies. And who's committing this violence? It's Jesus, the very same Jesus 
that we prefer to worship over the so-called Old Testament wrathful God. So I, I took us on a little tangent there out of Amos, but the reason for that tangent is that I want to make sure it's clear this morning that the judgment Amos prophesied for Israel isn't just some abstract trivia for us here in 2017. Something worse than an Assyrian invasion is coming for God's enemies. And the sight of the carnage on that day is going to be worse than even a pile of heads and hands in the middle of town. Revelation talks about the blood is going to run as high as a horse's bridle for miles. And Jesus, the righteous judge, is going to be the one shedding much of that blood. So if your life this morning looks like a basket of summer fruit, don't make the mistake of Israel and misinterpret that. Don't misinterpret your life being a basket of summer fruit as this is how it is now and this is how it will always be. Make sure you're one of God's people, not one of his enemies. We've seen the vision in the first three verses, and now Amos expands on that vision with two types of judgment. The first type of judgment is temporal judgment. That's in verses 4 through 10. And the principle we see there is this. The cosmos will participate in the outpouring of God's wrath. The cosmos will participate in the outpouring of God's wrath. Here in verses 4 through 6, we get a helpful review of what's bringing about this judgment in the first place. Listen to verse 4. Follow along with me. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Trampling on the needy. We've seen in past weeks what that was all about. Bringing the poor of the land to an end. That's not talking about killing the poor, rounding them up and killing them. No. These people depended on the poor to make their money on the backs of the poor, right? What he's saying is that the ruthless greed of the rich has the effect of exterminating the poor. How does it do so? Verses 5 and 6. These people are saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? That we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances? That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat? Wish I could explain all that fully here and show you how it applies to our lives now, but I'm going to leave some of that for our discussion in life groups this week. I do just want to briefly point out from verses 5 and 6 that these people are actually keeping the command to not work on the Sabbath, to take a day of rest out of every seven, which is more than some of us can say, right? But look at their hearts as they're doing it. Their hearts are something like this. There's money to be made today, and I'm missing out. Or it's so painful to have to spend so much time at these religious gatherings. Or... When will this preacher just wrap up his sermon so I can get home and make some deals, right? And it's not just that they want to get out of the worship service to go make money. It's that they want to get out of the worship service and go do deceitful work. You saw in verses 5 and 6 that they're wanting to use deceitful weights and measures in order to sell less product than advertised for more money than advertised, right? So here we have the Bible invading our workplace practices, Right? And somebody, maybe we're not brash enough to think it, but in our hearts we do this, right? We say, God, I, I'm willing to give you an hour or two on my Sunday morning, but what's this with trying to invade my Monday through Saturday life, right? But God, from the beginning of Scripture, has been interested in our marketplace practices, and injustice in the marketplace has always been a rejection of God's Word. 
He's always forbidden dealing unjustly to increase our profit. Take a look at what he said back in Deuteronomy 25. He said, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. God's always been interested in our workplace practices. Today, he might say something like this. Don't sell your clients a lesser product because you know that you, as the seller, are going to get more kickback from that manufacturer than you would if you sold a different product from a different manufacturer, right? That's wickedness. That's evil. And you can think of a thousand applications of this to our modern marketplace. But the bottom line is that the vision laid out here in Amos and throughout the Bible for business ethics is wildly different from the business ethic of the world out there where we live. Here in the Bible, we see a vision of God's people who are distinct. And they're distinct because we're the sort of people who leave some profit on the table, actually, in order to work for the flourishing of everyone. God feels so strongly about this that he swears an oath in verse 7. Do you notice that? It says, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. We'll have a chance to reflect in life group this week more on God's forgetfulness and what he does forget and what he doesn't forget. But what's clear in context here, in verse 7 of chapter 8, is that these perpetrators of marketplace injustice, God will not forget their injustice. He will, in other words, intentionally call to mind the wickedness that they've done in order to judge them. What's he going to do in response to their sin? Verse 8 starts to tell us. It tells us that the terrestrial world, the world down here, will participate in God's judgment. The land will tremble and be tossed about and rise and fall. Which might be talking about an earthquake. Might be talking about an enemy invasion. Maybe both. But what's left is going to look something like what some of the Caribbean islands experienced recently after these hurricanes. People return to their homes only to see a flat piece of land lying where their home once stood. In verses 9 and 10, it's not just going to be the terrestrial world, the world down here, that participates in God's judgment. The celestial world will also jump in. It says in verses 9 and 10, the sun's going to go dark at noon, which means that the earth is going to become dark at a time when it's supposed to be daylight. And you avid eclipse watchers know something about that in recent days. What's the significance of it? Well, it's a picture in the sky of the reality down below. Amos is saying that the sun's going to go dark at the time when it's supposed to be at the height of its brightness to reflect that the same thing's going to happen to Israel. Right when they're at the height of their wealth and prosperity, they're going to be snuffed out by God. Because of their marketplace injustice, God is going to intentionally, purposefully remember their sins, and the terrestrial world and the celestial world are both going to participate in God's judgment. And that's why we said at the outset of this second point that The cosmos will participate in the outpouring of God's wrath. But you know, the horror of that scene actually pales in comparison to the final section of the text. The horror of the temporal judgment pales in comparison to the spiritual judgment. And with the spiritual judgment in verses 11 through 14, we see this. God's dialogue with people who don't listen will become a monologue. God's dialogue... Two-way communication with people who don't listen 
will become just a monologue. Let me read verses 11 through 14. Please follow along with me as I'm reading those. And then we'll unpack it. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. I summarized those, first four, those four verses a moment ago this way. God's dialogue with people who don't listen will become a monologue. And the reason I worded it that way is because we've seen in verses 11 through 14 that there will come a day in which people will call out to the Lord but not hear anything in response. The biblical principle at work here is if you don't use it, you lose it. Right? Up to this time, God's been graciously giving his people his word. He's been speaking through the law and through the prophets, and people haven't been listening. And so if you don't use it, you lose it. In verse 12, we see people searching high and low for anyone who could share a genuine word from the Lord with them, but they're able, unable to find a single person who can. And so out of all the earthquakes that we've seen in this book, all the eclipses, all the invasions, the exile, the bloodshed, friends, this is the worst type of judgment that we've heard so far in Amos. People looking for God's word, but unable to find it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if our elders were seeking God's direction for the future of our church, but they just could not hear from the Lord on which way to take the church? Can you imagine if we had to read about something like the shooting in Las Vegas last week, and we were seeking a word from the Lord and how to understand such horrors, and we had no word from the Lord and how to understand it? Can you imagine if we lost loved ones before their time, seemingly, and we had no word from the Lord to comfort us in our grief? It would be worse than any material suffering could ever be. That's why Jesus reminded us of the words of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The reason he said that is because a day without food would be preferable to a day without God's word. But amazingly, after Amos was written, sometime after Amos was written, Israel experienced a 400-year-long famine of hearing the words of the Lord. It's the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This famine came true. Can you imagine that sort of hunger that would take place after 400 years of not hearing a word from the Lord? To the extent that we're not devastated when we consider that, it could reflect our own lack of love for God's word. Right? I think you might know what I mean. Some of us have 10 Bibles in our home, right? But just having 10 Bibles in your home doesn't mean that you're living on the word of God. It's possible to come to church every Sunday but not live like the word is the food that gives you the strength to get through each and every day. And you might think, well, we've always had the word of God. We've always had access to it here in America. So that's why we can't really grasp how horrible it would be to experience this famine. 
And to some extent, that's true. Um, but let's not forget what this famine was for 400 years. It, it wasn't that Israel lost the scriptures. They had the Old Testament during that whole 400-year period, right? The famine was that the prophets went silent. The famine was that they couldn't hear a word from the Lord that was particular to their day and time. Right? God wasn't speaking anymore. The communication was only one way for 400 years. Remember, the prophets do more than tell the future in the Bible. The primary role of a prophet was to call the people back to the covenant that had already been given to them, to remind them of the law, to give them vivid word pictures and images that convinced them of the importance of keeping their covenant with God or returning to it. And so thank God that this famine is over, right? That we're living today in a day and age in which there's no famine for God's word, but God has gifted his people with gifts that give us the ability to speak God's word into the particular situations of our day and time. And the New Testament talks about preaching that way, that to the extent that it's truly the scriptures being preached from this pulpit, you aren't hearing merely human words. You're hearing the very words of God preached from this pulpit. The New Testament talks about the spiritual gifts that way, that the Spirit doles out to those in our congregation, that uh, they're the gifts of prophecy and exhortation and teaching all of which take the written word of God and apply it to our lived situations today. One illustration of this from my own life. Five years ago, I was considering changing careers. I was a high school teacher, starting to think about what if I was going to be a pastor. And so I was able to access and hear a word from the Lord through brothers and sisters in my congregation and beyond who knew the Lord. And they were able to speak to me some words from Scripture about decision-making processes and how to go through those faithfully. They were able to give me godly wisdom that was not maybe explicitly from Scripture, but saturated in years and years of studying the Scriptures. And then one day, it was at the end of the school day, I was sitting in my classroom, uh, sitting at my desk grading papers, and the custodian who worked uh, my area of the building came in. His name was James. He was a believer. I hadn't seen him yet that year, and he looked at me sitting at my desk and he said, you're still here? And I said, yeah, of course I'm still here. What do you mean? He's like, well, I just thought you'd be preaching by now. And then he goes back to cleaning my room. Now, I had never once told him that I was thinking about that. I hadn't told anybody who knew him that I was thinking about that. That was a very private, secret thing with a very close circle of people. And I said, James, can you just tell me why you said that just now? He's like, I don't know. I just always thought I was hearing from God that you were going to be a preacher one day. And so the Lord used him as to speak a word to me that I needed to confirm the direction that God was putting on my life. You guys have stories like that too. I've heard some of your stories in which God used his people to speak to you, a word that was relevant for your day and time. But for 400 years of silence, Israel would have done anything for a word like that, and they couldn't get it. If some of us... Some of us live in a self-imposed famine, don't we? We skip life group more than we attend. Many churches have had to shut down their Sunday school adult education hours because they're offering a product that nobody's buying, nobody has a demand for. Half of you right now don't even have Bibles open as I'm preaching through this, so you have no idea if I'm preaching my own ideas or God's word, right? And then we complain, God, why are my prayers bouncing off the ceiling? Why does it feel like my communication with you is only one way? Maybe God's been responding all along, right? 
through that Sunday school teacher who spoke that apt word at that time when you needed it. Maybe God's been responding all along through the sermons and through his word as you followed along in the text. Maybe he's been trying to respond all along through that spirit-filled man or woman in your life group who can minister to you in your time of need. But we're imposing a famine on ourselves when we prioritize so many other things over putting ourselves in position to hear a word from the Lord. If you don't use it, you lose it. We saw in verses 12 through 14 how devastating it is when you lose it, so to speak. Verses 12 through 14, if you scan it, you'll see people who are like, somebody help me understand what I'm going through right now. And they can't find anybody who can help them understand it. They're fainting because they can't go on without nourishment. They're falling but not able to rise again. It's a total collapse that's brought on by God's decision to stop speaking. We'll have a chance in life groups this week to talk about whether our society is currently trending that way, trending toward a time when there's a famine for God's word once again. I tend to think that we probably are. But as our society, the world around us, becomes less familiar with the Bible, with God's word, I think there's going to be at least two effects of that. One effect, of course, is that people are going to become more hostile to us, right, Um, as the Bible becomes less and less familiar to them. But I think there's going to be another effect as well. I think that as our friends and neighbors around us become more and more biblically illiterate, there's going to be an increasing hunger and thirst for, for something real, right? For people are going to, we're, we're not made to live on bread alone. We're wired to respond to God. And so when, when the wisdom of the world, so-called wisdom, shows itself to be the nonsense that it is, people are going to increasingly search for something wise, for something stable, for something intelligent, for something prophetic, for something true question is, will we have something to offer them when they come looking for it? It'd be a shame if the world started hungering for God's word, but we couldn't give it to them because we hadn't taken the time to hide it in our own hearts. Imagine your neighbor comes up to you this afternoon and asks you, hey, you're one of those Christians. If your God's so good, why would he allow that shooting in Las Vegas, huh? Do you have a response? Do you have anything you can say, a word from the Lord to speak into that situation? If we don't know God's word, and we're not doing anything to learn it, we're imposing an unnecessary famine on ourselves when there's no need for it. And friends, we need to do something about that famine, self-imposed famine, before God's dialogue with us today becomes a monologue like it did for Israel. Well, throughout these three sections, we've seen this big idea kind of run throughout. Even if all seems well, repent. Many of us will repent when we hit rock bottom, right? When we have nowhere else to turn. But the message of Amos 8 is don't wait for that day. Even when all seems well, repent. Israel in Amos' day. America during the time of the real estate bubble. All indicators at the time were that life was good and would continue to be. In that sense, I wonder if it's something like what we're experiencing as Christians today in 2017 on the North Shore. Comfortable. Everything's good. No reason it shouldn't continue to be. 
Now you say, well, my kids at school get made fun of for being Christians. Okay, some of you may think, well, I get made fun of at school for being Christian, right? So do many people at school get made fun of, right? Gay kids still get made fun of. Um, people who wear knockoff brand shoes get made fun of at school. People who root for the wrong sports teams get made fun of at school. We're not going through anything uniquely hard as Christians here in America on the North Shore today in 2017, okay? Talk to Sam and Sharon Mall afterwards if you think we're going through something really hard right now. It's just not in the scheme and scope of what Christians have gone through throughout history. And so I think the word from Amos is a word from us this morning in our comfortable situation. It would be unwise for us to ignore this voice. It's calling us to face our sin, to own it, and to repent of it before the bubble bursts. And do you know what I mean when I'm using that word repent? A lot of times when we just hear that word thrown around, we're thinking of it something like this. We think repentance is, I'm walking this direction, and then I stop, and I say, Lord, I've sinned. Please forgive me. And then I keep walking again. But actually, when the Bible talks about repentance, it's more something like this. I'm walking this direction. I say, Lord, I've sinned. Please forgive me of my sins. And then I turn 180 degrees and I walk a different way. That's the repentance that Amos is calling Israel to. That's the repentance that we're called through, called to through his word today. Now, you may have noticed that in chapter 8, by the time we get to chapter 8 of Amos, that offer of repentance isn't even officially extended anymore. There's no official call to repent in chapter 8. They're too far gone by this point. But by God's grace, we today are not in that situation. As long as we can still find the softness in our heart this morning to desire to repent. Right? So as we sing this last song, we want to invite you to stand and sing or to sit at your seat and pray or to kneel at one of the kneelers that's around the room. But consider what in your life God is calling you to repent of and take that to him this morning. And as we repent, we do so remembering the promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Lord, your word to us through Amos has been a hard word for really five weeks now. And we take comfort in the hope that's coming next week. Lord, right now we don't want to shortcut the process of turning to the hope. We want to sit there with you in the place where you've called us to, the place of repentance that you've called us to. We want to let ourselves be broken once more. We want to lay our hearts bare before you and invite you to show us what evil way is present in our hearts. We want to give that to you and walk a different direction going forward. Lord, do that in us and help us to do so embracing your gospel and the hope that you will forgive our sins based on the blood of Jesus shed on that cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.